We've got quite a uh, long reading this morning, I think somewhere in the ballpark of 35 verses. It's all of Genesis 1 and uh, through 2-4, um, but as we read, I might encourage you to just pay attention to the rhythm, uh, the poetry um, of, of these verses, and um, yeah, and reflect perhaps on, on that uh, as we hear it in, in one chunk. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters um, from the waters. And the God made and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let uh, let the dry, dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, the fruit trees bearing tr- uh, fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruits in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens uh, to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heaven to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves in which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves. 
on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed uh, in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day of the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> who knows, uh, my reading ability this morning, who knows how much I would have screwed up. That up. Um, so we, uh, last week we kind of introed uh, a sermon series called Storied. And the reason we're calling it Storied is because we are a storied people. We latch on to, we love, we read, we watch, we listen to stories, podcasts, movies, books. All of these are stories that we, uh, we digest, that we take in, that then we want to live into or we want to live out of. Something inspires us, so we want to make that a part of our story. We also have stories ourselves. We are storied people. We live those stories, either the stories that we hear from our parents about who we were growing up or who our family was before this, uh, before us. All of this informs who we are and how we live, and these stories shape and form us. It might be surprising, then, to find that when we open Scripture as well, it might not be surprising to find when we open Scripture, that it is a story also. It doesn't open with like all these instructions, and this is what you do, and this is how you're supposed to live, and there is some of that, but first and primarily, it is a story. Through all of its genres of literature, through all of its authors and the redactors and how it's been shaped and brought together as one book, it tells one cohesive story. And I would reckon, yes, I said reckon, I'm from Oklahoma, so I would reckon that this is the grandest, most widest, most wildest, most captivating story that we can tell, that it's been told over and over and over again through myriads of genres of movies and fiction and literature and all of these things. This is the baseline story of what we um, are living into. And so we want to walk through this um, exceedingly fast, uh, unfortunately. Um, we will take our time, uh, but we want to tell the story from the beginning to the end. We're kind of taking a 100,000-mile approach. That's probably both the speed at which we're going with it, but also kind of the altitude of which we are looking down at it and looking through it. So we're going to start in Genesis, and in about four weeks or so, we're going to be in Revelation. And so uh, we're going to skip over a lot, um, uh, like the Midwest, uh, but we're going to skip over a lot. 
but it follows the basic pattern of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. These are words that are used to describe the fullness of the story as God has given it to us in Scripture. And there's a lot in like the redemption part, and we're just going to focus on a little piece of that. There's really actually quite a bit in the creation part, and we're going to focus on just a little piece of that. So on and on with all these other parts as well. But we are taking two weeks on creation. Last week we looked at um, kind of the baseline. It was kind of the, the, the prologue, if you will, the, the preface to the story. And we looked at Matthew, uh, the end of Matthew 3 and the beginning of Matthew 4 when Jesus goes out into the wilderness. But before he goes into the wilderness, he is baptized and God gives him an identity. You are my son whom I love. And that is our identity first and foremost. Now we're going back to the beginning to see where we got, how we get to that, and how we can live out of it as well. This week we're starting in the beginning. There are um, a myriad of traps and snares that we can fall into when we begin to talk about creation. And there's a lot of things that we're just not going to talk about. We're not going to deal with um, a seven-day creation versus anything else. Um, Honestly, I just don't care. And it kind of bores me to death to talk about science versus faith. That is, I don't want to give you any arguments to go out and win with your non-Christian friends because that's stupid. Um, (laughs) um, I'm a little unfiltered this morning. Um, But because that's not how we're going to win an argument. We want to live out of this story, and we, with our own lives, want to tell a richer, fuller story of both who God is and who we are in Him as well. So there's a lot of things that we just might not talk about. If you're interested in them, we can, we can look at them more in detail um, outside of this. The context in which Genesis was written in might be surprising to you. Uh, when the Israelites were exiled to Babylon, Babylon came in and conquered um, uh, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, and they took many of the people that were there to Babylon to live in exile. And this was the context in which this uh, beginning, this prologue, this creation story was written. It was written in a very particular pastoral moment for the people of Israel to remind them who God is and who their God is specifically in the face of this pantheon of Babylonian gods. So it was a very pastoral uh, 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 situation that was being written to. There was a lot of Babylonian theology about who all these other gods were, and this is what the the Babylonians would do. They would exile these people, and they would start to see some syncretism and some some adaption of who their their local religion and their identity in that. Um, But the writer of Genesis 1 wanted to remind the people who God is, who Yahweh is. They use the personal name of God throughout this first telling of Genesis 1 in this creation account. I think it can feel like a lot of times we are in exile as well. We are living in a place that tells us a lot of different things about who God is and who um, he wants us to be, the freedom that we should be able to experience in that, how we find our identity, how we find our meaning. It can often feel like we are wandering and wondering about what life 
is, where our home is, and even if the life that we have for us is the life that God would want for us. It is seemingly incredibly hostile to the Christian faith as well. We are asked to um, uh, bend our knee in different ways. We are asked to um, kind of um, uh, shape and form our own values to the culture around us. We see that happening. Um, We see um, this world in just utter chaos in many ways. Prices are changing. The price of eggs has doubled in like three weeks Like, this is insane. Everything seems incredibly chaotic. Are we entering a recession? What does life hold for us? What in the George Santos is going on right now? I mean, if there's anything that says uh, emptiness and futility and what is true, he is a great example of that right now. So I think it's a very good time for us to revisit the biblical story of creation because God loves the prep work. He loves entering in. He loves creating something. I worked in kitchens in Chicago and St. Louis, and prep work was like the drudgery of what we had to do. We'd get there midday, and by 5 o'clock, we had to have everything prepped and ready. But it was taking raw ingredients, and it was arranging them and organizing them and cleaning and uh, cleaning again and cleaning again and cutting and dicing and sauteing and everything and seasoning and making sure the chef was happy with all the things. But it was just work after work after work, drudgery of kitchen things to do. And then the real action started at 5 when the first customers walked in, the ticket came in, and we started firing dishes it became drudgery. Prep work was so much work to get to that part. But God loves the prep work. He loves getting things ready for us. In creation, God is readying his creation. He's preparing it so for so much more than we could ever imagine. And he does this by hovering, by speaking, and by resting. God hovers speaks and rests. In the beginning, God. At the very beginning of the story, we are introduced to the main primary character throughout all of Scripture. We meet a lot of people along the way, but God is the constant throughout. In the beginning, God. There's a sense of anticipation about something is going to happen, something amazing is about to happen. And we're kind of on the edge of our seat in these first three verses or so. It says God is hovering. He is moving. Uh, The picture is God. uh, uh, The picture of God is spirit in this moment is like an eagle or a bird fluttering its wings over its young, protecting them, getting them ready, being there and caring, uh, caring for them. It's kind of this picture of God mulling over the raw materials that he has and looking at what he's going to work with and dreaming about how he's going to create this place. It's God's spirit that we see hovering over the waters. Waters is this uh, over and over again is this picture of chaos. It says that it's to, the Hebrew is tohu bavohu, which uh, one uh, translator translates welter and waste. It's emptiness. It's futility. It is uh, formless and void. But over that, God's spirit hovers. This is God's outgoing, life-giving, creative, and sustaining energy. And it comes in intimate 
contact with the creation, with what he's about to do. God is not far off, and creation is not autonomous. It doesn't just get, get set up and run by itself. God is near to it. He is intimately involved. He's not rem- removed. He's not aloof. He's not far away. He is hovering over it and watching and waiting to see and dreaming of what he is going to do with it. It's kind of like when we go to the fridge and it's left overnight and we're going, what are we going to make? Usually it's we're just reheating things, right? We're just pulling out the Tupperware and popping the lids and throwing things in the microwave. But here God is dreaming about what he can make. One of the, the things I learned uh, very quickly, one of the things I said uh, to my chef was like, you know, basically we're just, we're just cooking leftovers for people. And he looked at me like I had spit in his face. And I was like, no, no, like, like we've made the things and then we're holding them and then we bring them all together to create this beautiful food. And he's like, oh, okay, I get what you're trying to say. Um, maybe, do you guys get what I'm trying to say? Okay, that there's this, this creative nature of God as he looks over it. It's formless and it's void. It's empty and it's futile. But he is able to, through the power of his spirit, his breath, breathe life into something that seems without it, that is without it. It's empty and it needs to be ordered. feels a lot of times like our lives are chaotic, that they're empty, that they're void, that they're formless. Sometimes they might feel even futile. We go through doing the same things over and over and over again. We're running in a thousand directions. We're being told that this is important. You should do this thing. Be involved in this. And there's no time for rest. There's no time for hobbies. Sometimes it feels like there's no time to even live. It feels like everything, uh, that nothing could be created out of our lives. And so we medicate. We numb the feeling through substances or escapism. We're control and performance. We do all of these coping mechanisms to try to gather control of our lives, to make something out of it. Would it change anything if we approached God to give him our lives that seem so formless and void? Would it change? What would change if you did that? If you brought your life to him, if you believe that God wants to create something beautiful out of your life, what would you take to him? Do you believe that he has the power to create in your life? Do you believe that he has the desire to create in your life? That he's waiting and watching with anticipation, lovingly longing to make your life Beautiful. This is God's invitation to you. He desires you. He created you. He desires you. God hovers. God waits. God anticipates. But the thing that God does the most in this passage is he speaks. It says God created the world. In the beginning, God created Says he ma- and that verb is used three times. It says he makes, which is an even more general word. That word is used five times in this passage in verses 4 through uh, 31. 
but it says he speaks 14 different times. God speaks. This is the characteristic action of God. And when he does this, he goes about filling and giving form to his creation. The, the earth is described at the very beginning as formless and void, but then through these six days of creation, we see God filling it and giving it shape. The first three days are giving it shape. So he separated and he gathered over and over again. These are the words that are used. He separated the light from the darkness. He separated the water from the dry land. He gave things to sprout up among it as well. And then he goes about filling it. And he says he filled, he brought forth, he made these things uh, to fill the earth. He gave there to be um, uh, living creatures, uh, swarming things in the water, birds to fill the air, light, uh, sun, and stars. Uh, He gave humans. He gave plants as well. There's a remarkable symmetry that God does through each of this. And each day, there's the time. There's the marking of the time of the day. There's the first day. It's the third day. It's the fifth day. It's God commanding something. He speaks and brings it about. Let there be this invitation there. It's executed, it says, and it was so, very gently, very calmly, very plainly. There's an assessment of it. It was good or it was very good. And then again, it marks the time. And that was the first day. It was morning and evening, the third day. In all of this creative speaking, God shows two things about who he is. He shows his authority and he shows his dominion. A lot of times we take this authority and dominion as these very authoritarianism things that he is controlling and he is willing these things to take place. But it's actually his authority is expressed more as an author than any kind of uh, despot or king or ruler. And God is writing a story. And he's writing his himself into the story as well. He speaks and things happen. It's really quite amazing. He just says, let there be this gentle invitation that is active and very empowering as well. When God speaks, things happen. His dominion is him being intimately involved in it. It's him caring, tending, feeding. He has concern for his creation. Again, it's not autonomous. It's not accidental. But this is shepherd language of God's involvement in what is taking place. He is here to serve creation, to love it, and to create and bring about life in every aspect of what he is doing. And he only speaks directly to one part of his creation, and that's humankind. To us, he gives his traits of authority and dominion to write our stories, to write other stories for people. That's a lot of power that we are given, but also to have dominion, to care, and to tend for that which when, with which we have been given, to bring forth life by cultivating the ground, by exercising care for the livestock and those things that God has given to us. 
There's no words of struggle here. There's not, uh, and then there was a big fight, and, and these gods were warring against each other, or humankind and God suddenly were after one another in this creation account. That would have been the Babylonian account. That would have been any other creation myth, actually, that is out there, is gods are warring with one another, and one god got mad at another, and so he created humans, or he created uh, the earth, and, and he brought forth this to spite some other guy. No, that's not the tone that God uses here. God speaks. It's not, it's not struggle. It's just invitation. These words um, bring about loving action. Again, I'm going with the cooking narrative or uh, illustrations here. When we sit down and we read a recipe, it puts us into action, the things that we can gather around us, and we begin to combine them, and we do the work of caring. And ultimately, we take this food that we have made, lovingly or hastily, and we put it on the table, and we say, eat. It's for our nourishment. It's for our joy. It's for us and our family and those in whom we're in community with and relationship to be able to love them, to care for them, and to take the raw materials, to take the chaos that we've been given, and to invite others into relationship with us that is nourishing, that is caring them. That is the desire that God wants for your life as well. So fill in the blank. What would you want God to say after let there be? What would you want to sprout up, to spring up in your life? What would you like separated? What would you like gathered? And God said, let there be. Kids bring about that desire very deeply in our lives. Harmony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Prosperity. Mm-hmm. Understanding. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. These are core things of who we are and what we need in this life. For me, I think um, a playfulness, I think a, um, a, a lack of perfection, like letting go of that, letting go of control, um, contentedness. Um, I don't, I'm not a pick-a-word guy. I think we talked about this, Sarah. I'm not a pick-a-word guy uh, for the year or whatever, but that just seemed to be coming um, up, uh, just a lack of contentedness in a lot of my life, whether it's things or how, you know, work and how we're, we're moving slowly but steadily here, but to be content in that, to not just rage at God about it sometimes, um, to not feel the pressure that other people put on me as well of why, why aren't you? Further along, why are you still in your house, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's something really beautiful that's here, but it still is incredibly uh, challenging at times. 
I think this is a, an invitation. One of the um, uh, commentators said this is an invitation for us to confess and celebrate God, to confess and celebrate what he is doing in our life. I think this is something that we could integrate more into um, our relationships with one another. We could talk about what God is doing, maybe what we hope he would be doing in our life as well, to be able to long for that. And to and to also, to say it to one another, but to say it um, to God as well. God, I want this out of you. Please say, let there be. And then to, to pray and to hope that he is loving and caring enough to write that into your story or to leave it out. Could go either way. The last thing God does, he, he hovers in anticipation. He speaks life into existence, and then he rests. Like this is one of the most astounding parts of the creation story to me. God rested. He looked at all that he had done, at the separation of water, the separation of light and dark, dry land and water, of filling it with birds and swarming things and creating this humanity in his image, and he declares it to be good and to be very good. And then the author tells us it was finished. He was done with creation. It was a completed work. And so he rested. Seven days really tells us this completion. Seven is a number of completion in uh, the Hebrew Bible. It is a number of wholeness and of goodness. And this also, though, tells us that God delighted in what he had made. He rested in it. There wasn't further tweaking. There wasn't anything else that he needed to do. It was good. It was very good. It's not anxious. He wasn't coercing anything, but he rested in his joy that he had made. God rests because there is a satisfying, finished quality to his work. And he calls it blessed or holy. This is a word that we hear over and over and over again. And it's an artistic, aesthetic quality. Blessed is an artistic, aesthetic quality. This beauty of what he has made. It is not something, again, not something that has been made despite some other God. It's not something that is incomplete. It's not something that is ugly. It's something that he calls beautiful. Just don't forget you're included in that as well, right? Like we, want, we look at the mountains and we go, ah, there is God's beauty. We're going to escape to them for a, a few hours on a Friday or a Saturday. No, God says you, you are beautiful. I made you beautiful. I made you very, very good. And I set you apart. That's what holy is. It's set apart. It's something special. It is the highest adjective that the biblical authors give to anything. Um, to God and to his creation. This is the beauty of plated food, right? When we lovingly take care 
of things and we think through how we want it to look on a plate and then we eat it and there's this satisfaction that we have in eating and in resting. It used to be that eating dinner in, in particular was the only time that people were able to sit down and rest in their lives. They would work all of the day, either out in the field or around the house, and then either preparing the meal or gathering things to be able to prepare the meal. And so finally, at the end of the day, they would sit down and they would enjoy the fruits of their labor. We skew this so much in our own lives, in our daily lives. Has anybody seen the menu? Have you seen this movie, the menu? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm not ruining it, but I'm telling you the whole story. So <laughs> it is this um, incredibly exclusive dinner experience that these people go on a boat out to on this island far away from everything else. It is like every restaurant that I would ever want to eat at is how they set this up. And it's a dark comedy, so just be prepared for that when you watch it. But one of the things that the chef says, and he's serving these incredibly esoteric dishes, and he says uh, um, he serves the bread plate without bread. So it's all the accompaniments that come with a bread plate, but he doesn't give them bread. This is a very esoteric experience, and this one guy is just loving all of it, um, and the chef can do no wrong. Um, but what he says to them, his instructions to them at the very beginning is, I don't want you to eat. I want you to taste. I want you to taste what this is, the, all of the expertise and everything that goes into it. But there's no love in it. Ultimately, that is the... Um, uh, a judgment that is given by the one pr- one woman character who has her eyes open to everything, and she throughout this you know throughout the movie discovers more and more about who he is, um, and she wasn't supposed to be there. She wasn't on the original invite list to this this particular dinner, but she sees that he started out as a hamburger cook, flipping flipping patties putting together uh you know this exquisitely like the ham- like um there's a place in Atlanta um that would do a flat top burger and then put onions on it and then cheese on top and then double it up and then put it on a toasted bun and Holman and Finch is just absolutely delicious wonderful just the lacing on the burger and all that and she sends one of her plates back and says it's under season I didn't like it what I want you to make for me is a hamburger and he goes through the same care and all of this that he does with all these other dishes, but he actually finally puts love into it. And when she takes this massive bite of the hamburger, you can see that she is eating, but she's also tasting truly for the first time in the evening this care and consideration. And there's this satisfaction that she has in that bite of the hamburger. This is resting. This is taking satisfaction in God's finished work. Again, there can be such a feverish activity, of the hustle and bustle, the running around, the chaos that is in our lives. It just feels like futility. But God resting on the seventh day is a faithful invitation for us to rest as well. Busyness is not a quality that God is after. He didn't finish up creation and then start doing other things and tweaking and going further into what could have been done. 
Busyness doesn't give us meaning and purpose. It doesn't fill the void, and it doesn't bring life. And it certainly doesn't give rest. Resting, on the other hand, breeds delight. It breeds joy. It allows relationships to happen. It allows our mind. Uh, there are studies that actually say that resting and taking breaks in our work give us more energy, give our minds more freedom to be able to work. That's not necessarily why we should rest, but maybe for our own American idols, we can take that as something to do. We can rest and take delight in our work because it's never going to be finished saying that we're not God, that he is always at work, but it is trusting in what he is going to accomplish in our lives. God hovers, God speaks, and God's rest. God's intimate involvement in creation culminates in Jesus. We can't speak this word of creation. This is the promise that we have from the very beginning, that his spirit will always be present and that he is so intimately involved in this creating work that he will do whatever it takes to continue to remain remain, uh, in constant care and um, relationship with it, that he enters into it. He is not far off, but he is near. And on the cross, Jesus declares It is finished. God's work of redemption, of reclaiming his creation, happens and culminates in Christ coming to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve, and to be raised to new life in him so that we too can rest in in God's good creation. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that um, you are not far off that you love us, that you care for us, that you uh, didn't create out of uh, frustration or angst or anxiety, but you created out of your desire for goodness. You love your creation, and you have not abandoned it. You are near to us, nearer than we can even expect, Lord. May your spirit enliven us. Give us life in you. Give us rest in you, knowing that we are not God, but that you are in control and that you are trustworthy and that you are faithful to complete your creation in our lives to tell your story through the power of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, in whom we pray. Amen.